Half Price Horror. Hello and welcome to Half Price Horror, where we get our terror at a discount and pass the savings on to you. Half Price Horror is a spoiler-heavy podcast that takes a deep dive into scary movies curated by the selection at the local Half Price bookstore. I'm your host, John, and today we'll be taking a look at Drag Me to Hell from 2009. Written by Sam and Ivan Raimi, directed by Sam Raimi. Raimi had been doing pretty well for himself since we last left him in 1992. As a producer, he had a number of successful TV series like Hercules The Legendary Journeys and Xena Warrior Princess, and movies like Time Cop and The Grudge. And as a director, he'd gone on from one critically acclaimed film to another throughout the 90s until Sony finally tapped him to make 2002 smash hit Spider-Man and its two sequels, which pretty firmly established him as an A-list director. But spending roughly seven years going straight from post-production on one Spider-Man film directly into pre-production on the next elaborate blockbuster left him exhausted, and the critical drubbing the third film took didn't help. It's become something of a punchline among superhero fans, sad to say. As a result, he decided to go smaller and more personal for his next film. He dusted off an old screenplay he and his brother wrote back in about 1999 and brought it to Rob Tappert, who convinced Universal to greenlight it. Because he was aiming for a smaller film, the budget for this production was $30 million, a pretty big sum in real people terms, but a relative pittance compared to the $350 million Sony spent on Spider-Man 3, we didn't get a whole lot of A-list celebrity actors. The female lead, Alison Lohman, who picked up the role of Christine when Elliot Page had to drop out due to scheduling issues, was mainly known for roles in independent dramas like White Oleander and Matchstick Men. This was probably her highest profile role to date, but she retired from acting not long afterwards to focus on her family, which feels kind of ironic given the movie's themes. She now coaches actors online, although she's done a few smaller roles in the movies of her husband, Mark Neveldeen, who's the director of Crank and Jonah Hex, among other things. Playing Clay, Christine's nebbishy boyfriend, is Justin Long, who's one of those actors who always feels like he could have been a lot more famous and chose instead to have the most interesting filmography possible. He got his start as the Galaxy Quest superfan Brandon in Galaxy Quest, moved on to roles in the first two Jeepers Creepers features. I've seen used copies of this movie in stores. Even knowing that the director won't get a dime if I buy them, I still haven't been able to bring myself to pick one up. And then he had his big breakout role with Dodgeball, a true underdog story. But instead of just settling into a series of amiable comedies, he went and did things like Tusk and Barbarian. Seeing him in the credits of a horror movie is always a sign that the production will be interesting at the very least. Sylvia Ganush, whose memorable appearance is the inciting incident for this story, is played by Lorna Raver, a character actor and perennial day player who's been working steadily for the past 30-odd years in a variety of shows from ER to Ally McBeal to Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman. This is probably her signature role, although she apparently didn't fully realize what she was in for until after she signed. I feel like only Bruce Campbell fully knows what he's getting into when he agrees to do a Sam Raimi movie. Dilip Rao, who plays Christine's would-be savior Ram Joss, has been a little bit selective in his choice of parts since this film, which was kind of his breakout role. He did a few little things like the TV shows Con Man and Z Nation, a part here and there in Mr. Robot, and oh yes, he's in Christopher Nolan's Inception and at least the first four Avatar movies so presumably he's doing all right for himself financially. And the two men whose workplace politics are responsible for everything are Mr. Jax, played by David Paymer, and Stu Rubin, played by Reggie Lee. Lee is a Filipino-American actor who's been all over Hollywood in everything from The Fast and the Furious to the Pirates of the Caribbean movies to Brooklyn Nine-Nine to 2009 Star Trek, but he's still wet behind the ears compared to Paymer. Hamer is one of the famous faces famous faces, getting his start in the late 70s with an appearance in The In-Laws, before doing guest appearances on television shows from Barney Miller to Happy Days to Cheers to Moonlighting to Different Strokes to basically, if you liked it in the last four decades, he's done at least an episode of it. He's still working, too, with a role in the first season of Picard and a six-episode stint on The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. If you're a horror fan, though, you'll probably recognize him from Night of the Creeps. And we'll discuss the rest of the cast as we go. 
starting with Alexis Cruz and Ruth Livier, seen immediately in the film's cold open as an unnamed couple pulling up to an elegant Pasadena mansion in 1969 in a truck that immediately denotes lower socioeconomic status. They're calling in Spanish for a woman named Sean Sandina, played in flashback here by Flor de Maria Chahua, and bringing out a young son from the flatbed of the truck who's played by Shiloh Selassie. The immediate impression is of urgency and panic even before Sandina gets the particulars of the situation. It appears the boy stole something from a group of Romani three days ago, and ever since then he's been seeing monsters in the shadows calling to him. Although, as my girlfriend put it, I'm guessing that wasn't the term they used. And I guess that means we have to tackle the elephant in the room right away, because Sam Raimi is of a generation that absorbed whole and uncritically an entire truckload of exoticized depictions of the Roma that he then passed on fairly unquestioningly in this movie. He's far from alone in this. The novel Thinner by Stephen King also uses a similar baseline premise, but 2009 is past the point when people were beginning to have conversations about this. So let's dig in just a little before we go any further, because you can't really talk about Drag Me to Hell without talking about the underlying prejudices regarding the Romani people who are referred to here using a slur that I will not repeat. To give a quick lay folks history, and I don't pretend to be any kind of expert on the topic, the Roma were a cultural and ethnic group that can trace their origins back to India through DNA, linguistic evolution, and oral history. They began to migrate west somewhere around 1000 CE for reasons that are now unclear, but were scattered in a diaspora that sent them all over Europe and Asia by the 14th century. As a nomadic and stateless people, they were frequently subject to persecution and discrimination wherever they went, which often took the form of harassment, prejudicial employment practices, enslavement, wholesale genocide, and any number of other forms of persecution that still continue to the present day across Europe, Asia, and the United States all of which was very often preceded by the spreading of harmful cultural myths about their criminal lifestyle and superstitious, frequently supernatural traditions. Obviously, there were some roots, in fact, to the rumors. When you're being constantly denied the right to make a legitimate living, settle down in one spot, and live as part of the local society without being forced to abandon your own culture and assimilate, you're going to do whatever you have to in order to survive, and I'm sure some individual Romani did turn to theft or swindling because the alternative was starvation but it's obviously no more common than among any other group of disadvantaged people trying to stay alive. Likewise, I'm sure some Romani did spread stories about being able to curse people who wronged them, because when you can't rely on law enforcement or community support to keep you safe from harm, it can be useful if people think you can visit supernatural vengeance upon them. But over time, these myths and legends wound up creating a whole cultural image of the Romani as wanderers, child stealers, crooks, and generally licentious people who should be driven off at any opportunity. This ultimately led to their targeting by the Nazis as part of the Holocaust, which has forced society to re-evaluate their prejudices, albeit at a tremendous, unthinkable cost. And now we are reaching a point where the casual, cultural appropriation of this harmful stereotype is being recognized and discouraged. But, unfortunately, not by Sam Raimi in this movie. I think you have to acknowledge this right off the bat, because this story really is built on that foundation of prejudice and can't exist without it, and there's just no way of proceeding without setting that out there. But with all that said, the little boy is suffering from a supernatural curse inflicted by one of the local Romani, a curse Sean Sandina recognizes as summoning an entity called the Lamia, which is actually a supernatural entity from ancient Greek folklore who steals children. But obviously we're hitting the cultural appropriation early and often, and here it's just the name for a generic evil demon and taker of souls. Sandina begins to make preparations for an exorcism to purge the curse, but she gets maybe 30 seconds in before a supernatural wind appears from nowhere, knocking her and both parents down before pursuing the child out onto a balcony. He tumbles and falls to the marble floor below, and as the three adults watch, the floor breaks open and demonic hands, very literally, drag him down to hell. Sandina swears revenge upon the Lamia, and we cut hard to the opening credits, which are a series of animated illustrations from a book on the Lamia and the torments it brings. 
Now that the stakes are established, we cut to present-day Los Angeles, where Lone Officer Christine is practicing her diction with some recorded elocution lessons on her way to work. We see from this, from her conscious pause at the window of a bakery, and from her covetous glance at the vacant assistant manager's desk of her local bank branch, that this is a woman who is striving to keep up with a number of cultural expectations about her. She has to be thin, she has to lose her southern accent, which keeps cropping up in stressful moments throughout the movie, and she has to keep climbing that corporate ladder. Right off the bat, Raimi is setting a conscious tone here, asking us to be fully aware of the overwhelming and unnavigable pressures placed on women everywhere at all times to be perfect. And almost right afterwards, he reminds us that men are not subject to those same pressures, as Christine stops her manager Mr. Jax to ask him whether he's made a decision regarding the assistant manager job, and he mentions that he's narrowed it down to Christine and Stu Rubin, a man so new to the bank that he still does not know the lending guidelines that Christine has to train him on. And let me just say that I love the decision to cast a Filipino-American actor as Stu Rubin. Far be it for me to suggest that the part was written for a white man, but I want to shout out colorblind casting wherever it occurs. And I feel like it really reinforces the patriarchal overtones of this portion of the movie when two men overcome their racial differences to do their part in putting a woman, quote, in her place, unquote. And it's not hard to pick up that this is exactly what's happening here. Stu is obviously falling upward, because the same exact traits that are seen as harsh and unappealing in Christine are seen as assertive and confident in Stu, and Mr. Jax has a natural affinity for a fellow man who quote-unquote makes the tough decisions that he doesn't question in the slightest. There's no doubt in our minds that Jax is telling Christine what she wants to hear in order to keep stringing her along and get her working twice as hard as any of the guys in the office while perpetually keeping her rewards one step out of her reach. And we just know she's not going to get that promotion. No matter how hard she tries, no matter how cultured she sounds, no matter how many snacks she denies herself, she's simply not the right material for management. And by that they mean she's not a dude. This is a movie about the systematic and institutional injustices of misogyny and how they interleave and interlock to form a cage that crushes women every day. I'm just putting that out there now because this movie keeps getting bleaker and bleaker despite the campy tone of some individual scenes, and I want you to know what we're getting into right away. Jax asks Christine to go to lunch early, and to pick him up a sandwich while she's out, just to put a nice tidy cap on the themes addressed above and to add insult to injury. Stu asks her to pick up one for him as well, as though he's already her boss and not the new guy she's still training in. She agrees, because Christine's fatal flaw is that she genuinely believes that someday if she keeps playing by the rules and working hard and doing more than everyone else does, she's eventually bound to get ahead, and she reconnoiters with her boyfriend Clay for a lunch date. Clay is a newly minted college professor, they don't specify of what, but given his frequent use of psychological jargon, I think we can assume psychology who's superficially supportive but who betrays his true colors right away by telling her not to bother trying to fix the printer he's having trouble with because he's been messing with it all day and can't get it to work. She fixes it in five seconds. Because Christine is better than any man and the only things holding her back are the dudes in her life. She gives Clay a little present, a rare coin she found in circulation at the bank, which is slightly unbelievable for someone who's not at a teller position and doesn't handle cash on a regular basis, but hey, it's Chekhov's rare coin, so we're just going to have to accept the slightly clunky exposition, and then leaves to get back to work. But just as she's exiting, Clay gets a call from his mother, and Christine is close enough to overhear her bad-mouthing the quote-unquote farm girl her son is dating, and suggesting that he break up with Christine to find a more compatible partner who can help his career. And the way Clay meekly, timidly tries to object only to get steamrolled right over suggests that he's a man who's very used to putting family over his romantic partners when push comes to shove. I think I've read a dozen Am I the Asshole posts about guys just like him. When Christine gets back to the bank, Stu gaslights Christine about getting his order wrong, which a little use of the rewind button will tell you she absolutely did not do. 
When she stands up for herself, and thank goodness she does, Stu looks over at Mr. Jax with a women, am I right, expression on his face that will really make you root for an ending we absolutely do not get. The whole cast is great here, and I'm going to be raving about Alison Lohman as we go on, but I really think Reggie Lee deserves a lot of credit for just nailing Stu's unearned smugness and sniveling, wheedling cowardice when he's finally called on his bad behavior. Stu then presents Mr. Jax with some Laker tickets he supposedly couldn't use, and if there's a tiny false note here, it's that I do work in the mortgage industry, and at my bank at least, your ass would be fired for accepting them. I can't say if regulations got more stringent over the 15 years between then and now, or whether I just work for a bank that takes this more seriously, but there's a lot of scrutiny on improper gifting practices in the financial sector, and taking very expensive tickets to a sports game from someone whose compensation and promotion prospects you control is a huge, huge red flag. This is illegal not to put too fine a point on it. But all that's nothing compared to what happens when Sylvia Ganush, an elderly woman with a thick Hungarian accent, comes in and asks Christine for help with an extension on her mortgage. Because Mrs. Ganush says that there are movers at the house picking up her things, and when Christine examines the paperwork, she says that yes, the bank has informed her that they are repossessing her property that same day. And this is a moment that completely breaks immersion for me because I work for a bank. I work with foreclosures on a daily basis, albeit not in any kind of decision-making capacity, and I will tell you this for free. If you get to the point where they are kicking you out of your house that day, the pretty blonde woman at the bank is going to be able to do exactly fuck all to help you. Because foreclosure isn't an overnight process. Once you go delinquent on your loan, by which I mean you get more than one full month behind on your payments, the bank has an entire series of steps they go through before they can do anything as drastic as take your house away. Which, contrary to what this movie says, they usually don't want to do because foreclosure is an expensive process and at the end of it you have a house instead of money and banks would very much rather have the latter than the former. Mr. Jack says the bank stands to make a ton of money in fees, but it's actually the other way around. Banks have to pay those fees to appraisers, lawyers, and the court before they can complete the foreclosure process. This would have been especially true in 2009, when the massive wave of defaults resulted in a glutted real estate market and houses that the bank has to maintain and pay taxes on while they try to sell it. Obviously, this is not a have-pity-on-the-poor-bank speech, but it is worth noting that at all times, the bank's best outcome is getting you back into being a regular-paying customer. But to get back to those steps, first, the bank would have contacted Mrs. Ganush to inform her that she was in default and needed to catch up. This would have been where she got those first two loan extensions, presumably, although in actuality they don't usually just defer payments. They work to restructure the loan to see if they could get the monthly cost down to below what Mrs. Ganush could afford on a fixed income. Under state and federal law, she would have had a dedicated specialist assigned to her at this time in order to ensure that she didn't just have to walk into the bank and grab the first person she could find to ask them for another deferment on her loan. Specifically keeping in mind that, again, a lot of the regulations I'm familiar with were passed in the wake of the 2008 banking crisis by wonderful people like Liz Warren, who had the customer's best interests at heart. So it's possible that at least a few of these things I'm saying may not have been operational back in 2009, or may at the very least not have been legal requirements. But the general thrust remains the same. Now, assuming we reach the point where Sylvia can't get any more deferments and her income isn't enough to qualify for any kind of a reduced payment structure, this would be where the bank gets frank with her and offers her a choice. She can either sell the house and use whatever proceeds she gets to pay off the loan, known as a short sale, or she can hand over the house to the bank in order to forestall foreclosure proceedings and protect her credit rating, known as a deed in lieu, or the bank will hire a lawyer and bring a foreclosure suit against her for failure to adhere to the terms of the mortgage. Presumably Mrs. Ganush would have said no to those first few options, since they result in her having to move out, which puts it in the hands of the court. So at this point, and we are still not yet at the point where anyone is moving anyone out of anywhere, it's the judge Sylvia has to go talk to, not Christine. Christine is no longer in any kind of position to help or hinder the progress of the pending litigation. 
and when the judge looks at the evidence, they decide on the merits of the case whether to rule in favor of the bank or to force them to enter some sort of court-ordered mediation to help the borrowers stay in their house. Again, the bank doesn't really want the house here. They'll certainly take it if the option is the house or nothing, but their primary goal is to keep getting a regular flow of cash coming from a loan, and default sucks for them too. Again, not to make this about pity the poor banks, but it is worth understanding that banks don't like to foreclose if they can avoid it. So there are still off-ramps even after the case goes to trial. And in fact, there are even off-ramps after the judge decides in favor of the bank. My job is basically to make sure none of the paperwork gets lost when it's shipped from bank to attorney to judge, back to attorney, and then back to bank. And I've seen documents come back saying that the loan is foreclosed even though the borrower still has the loan and the house at the end of the process. There's a lot of room to get help. Not that I want anyone to be in that position, but if you do happen to be listening to this and you're a homeowner going through financial hardship, please do talk to your bank early and often. They really do want to help you stay in your house if it's at all possible. But the point is, once foreclosure is complete, the house goes up for auction at a sheriff's sale. And once that auction is completed, and whoever buys the house hands over the cash and signs the paperwork, that is not your house anymore. It is someone else's house. There is no longer a loan to ask for an extension on, because that loan has expired and you don't have collateral to borrow against, nor do you have a purpose for the money you're asking for. Only then, after all those steps have been completed, do people show up to evict you. So if Sylvia Ganush is at that point when she's walking into the bank on that fateful day, Christine does not have a decision to make. She's not even technically talking to a customer. She is commiserating with a woman who has been evicted from her former home, and there are no options for help on the table. Now, obviously, this is all fiction, and I don't expect strict fiduciary realism from this movie any more than I expect Evil Dead to accurately depict nail gun physics. But it still irks me because it's such needless melodrama. The scene would still work if Sylvia Ganush came in and said she was three months behind on her loan, but Raimi decided to go for the big dramatic gesture of I'm being evicted from my home today for no reason beyond making Christine look a little bit more heartless when she said no to the loan extension. Um, spoilers. I don't know, maybe this is something that's only a problem for me and a tiny cross-section of mortgage industry workers, but it stuck out like a sore thumb. But to get back to the actual movie, Christine checks in with Mr. Jax to see if she can authorize another extension, leaving Mrs. Ganoush to hack up thick gouts of phlegm, take out her dentures at Christine's desk, and steal all the candy in her candy dish. I do think the point of making her unappealing here is to give you a kind of Christine's eye view of why she might not sympathize with a woman in a very difficult position, but I think it's honestly kind of a mistake. As we discussed at the very beginning, the film others Romani characters in a deeply uncomfortable and racist way, and I think there's a difference between there are no perfect victims and ugh, isn't this old woman gross and disgusting? But of course, we then get the crucial act of hamartia that drives the movie. Christine brings the paperwork into Mr. Jackson rather than giving her a yes or no, he just tells her that it's a tough decision and leaves it up to her. Well, knowing full well that he just mentioned to her this morning that an assistant manager needs to be able to make the tough decisions. Basically, he's keeping his hands clean in case this somehow backfires, while making it clear to Christine that her future prospects with the bank rely on her doing things she knows to be unethical. And while I did just use my personal experience in the mortgage industry to go on an extremely lengthy rant on why something is so implausible that it took me out of the movie, I'll do the opposite here and say this was so realistic it gave me chills. Because while I won't say which bank I work for, I will say that if you read the news in, oh, say, 2016 or so, you might know which one it was and why it is that higher-ups setting unrealistic goals that could only be met through unethical and fraudulent behavior really hits home with me. And as in this movie, it was all done in a way that left higher-ups free to plead ignorance and the lower-tier employees on the hook for all of the criminal activity that took place. This is the cruelty of capitalism in action. Nobody ever tells you to violate your own personal code of ethics, they just put you in a position where you have to do it to survive and then blame you for taking the only option available to you. Someone is always a scapegoat in systemic and institutional issues of corruption, and sadly it is always going to be the people from marginalized groups. People of color, queer people, 
or in this case, women. Christine, understanding the implicit instructions, but still not clued into the much harsher reality that she's being used by a callous and uncaring boss, goes back out and breaks the bad news to Mrs. Ganush. While starting to mispronounce her name right about here and consistently through the rest of the movie, which I think is a very interesting choice on Raimi's part to make her ever so slightly less sympathetic towards the person that she's kind of screwing over. The old woman breaks down, literally getting on her knees and begging Christine for help, and when Christine gets understandably unnerved by the performance and calls for security, Mrs. Ganush is viscerally offended by her response and reacts with deep, hateful anger. Now, I could point out that this is the perfect place to break out the classic customer service phrase, I want to speak to your manager. I could point out that Mrs. Ganush, being a woman who's familiar with dire economic straits and knows what it's like to be a lowly peon in a job that gives you tons of responsibilities and no actual power, should know that Christine is between a rock and a hard place and not responsible for all of her woes. I could point those things out, but this is the entire purpose of the movie. We're supposed to understand that Christine has been maneuvered into letting the entire inverted pyramid of shit rest on her head, and she will get no true aid or sympathy from anyone from here on out, because that is what happens to women when it becomes more convenient for them to be discarded than protected, even though the supposed bargain they make with the interlocking patriarchal systems that run their lives is protection in exchange for submission. These two women are being pitted against each other, and neither one of them can ever inflict harm on their true, meaningful tormentors, as represented by Mr. Jax. Again, God, this film is bleak. Mrs. Ganush is escorted out, while Octavia Spencer, of all people, looks on from the background in a non-speaking cameo? I'd really love to know what got her onto this set, because this is well after any point where she'd need work as an extra. And the old woman drives off in her car, an Oldsmobile Delta 88 that's suspiciously familiar to Sam Raimi fans. That evening, Christine gets the promise of promotion dangled in front of her again, this time to convince her to bring work home, and, speaking of things that threw me out of the movie, grabbing a folder full of someone's confidential loan information to take home with you and work on yourself is an instant firing. I was considered an essential worker during the height of the COVID pandemic because there was no way for me to do my job from home. And she cheerfully agrees, still believing there's a reward for playing by the rules. And when she gets to the parking garage where she left her car, well, you can probably guess who's waiting for her. Mrs. Ganush appears in her car, seemingly supernaturally, and attacks her in a tense and vicious struggle. Alison Lohman did almost all her own stunts for this film, including some wire work in later scenes, and that's really impressive in moments like this where she's being strangled and having her earrings pulled out and being gummed repeatedly and crashing her car in low-speed collisions and generally doing her best Bruce Campbell impression. She really goes for it with a ton of gusto here, and it's tremendously impressive. It's also interesting to me because I do think part of the reason this movie didn't do well, or at least didn't do better, is because audiences think it's hilarious to see a strong-chinned, taut-muscled guy suffer ridiculous injuries, but when it happens to a petite blonde woman who is the absolute picture of winsome vulnerability that we think of when we think of culturally coded femininity under a patriarchal system, it becomes deeply and intensely uncomfortable. This is a film that really makes you unpack a lot of your internalized social programming, is what I'm trying to say, and I don't think audiences were ready for that when they walked into a horror comedy from the guy who made Spider-Man and Army of Darkness. Oh yes, and Mrs. Ganush rips a button off of Christine's coat in the fight, mutters some dire-sounding words over it in a foreign language, and presses it back into her hand. Because A, this is a film that is full-on embracing the racist notion that the Romani can curse people and cause them to suffer dire misfortune. B, Christine is going to get that curse over anyone else involved because women are so often scapegoated for behavior that men would get away with. And C, Sam Raimi has seen Jacques Tourneur's 1957 film Night of the Demon, also sometimes known as Curse of the Demon. Tourneur, who also directed the classic Cat People and I Walked with the Zombie, adapted an M.R. James story called Casting the Runes into a movie about a sinister occultist who killed people by passing on papers to them that contained cursed runes, and the hero's efforts to hoist him on his own petard by slipping the same piece of paper right back to him. You will see how this influences the story as we go on. 
For now, though, the police show up, but Mrs. Ganoush has already vanished, and Clay shows up to bring Christine home and take care of her. But she's unnerved by the seemingly supernatural nature of events, and she's also guilty about her role in things even though Clay tells her that, hey, that's just the way the system works and you can't feel sorry for everybody who's having financial difficulties. Because he's part of the patriarchal system too, even though he'd be shocked and horrified to realize it. Christine impulsively decides to stop at a local fortune teller's place to see if there was any truth to Mrs. Ganoush's seeming curse, and although Clay is the most graceless asshole about it a human being can possibly be, he agrees. Clay is one of those skeptics. I don't think I need to say any more. But the psychic, Ram Joss, turns out to be more than a match for Clay's smug grad student rhetoric. He counters Clay's Freudian analysis of palm reading with Jung's more measured approach, and it's immediately clear to the audience that he's the real deal and can make good on his promises. It's unfortunate that he's also played by a person of culture, which perpetuates the exoticism and cultural appropriation that permeates the film, but Dilip Rao is so charming and confident in this movie that I can't really complain. He has leading man energy in a big way, and he should be getting a lot more work. He also worked closely with the production team to come up with the ideas for the props and decorations in his study, using them to help him inhabit the character, which is just so cool. But when the reading begins, and by the way, Clay, $60 isn't out of line for that kind of service, do your homework, we see right away that something genuinely sinister is going on. Dark shadows begin to move through the room, mysterious winds blow from nowhere, the glass on one of the picture frames cracks, and Ramjas pulls his hand away quickly and tells her he's sorry but he can't help her. Clay thinks it's all a scam, especially because Ram gives her his business card for later and doesn't protest too hard when Christine insists on paying him anyway, but Christine instantly knows better. And for all that I love Dilip Rao in this movie, this is another example of dudes being useless in the end. If he'd spent a good 30 minutes talking with her about everything that had happened and leveled with her that yes, the button bore a terrible curse and she needed to gift it to someone to pass it away from her, Christine would have had a whole day of head start on the difficulties that plagued her and this whole movie would have been different. But he wasn't going to stick his neck out like that for some random woman. Because in the end, guys need to do a whole lot better at unpacking their patriarchal programming. Christine and Clay head home, and Clay heads right back out to take care of the car stuff, leaving Christine alone with her adorable little kitten that you probably shouldn't get too attached to. She bakes a cake for tomorrow's dinner with Clay's parents, and a photo falls out of the cookbook of her as a younger woman, carrying some extra weight and posing with her prize hog as Pork Queen 1995. It's just a little reminder for those in the audience who might not have picked up on it yet that she sacrificed a lot of her authentic self to comply with society's expectations for her. Not that there's anything wrong with not wanting to be Pork Queen of 1995 either, but she has just traded one form of patriarchal social control for another here. Then shit starts getting supernatural, and Raimi pulls out a whole new bag of directorial tricks to make this look scary without also looking like Evil Dead 3 and a half. There's a really cool stepped zoom where the camera zooms for a half second, then cuts to a shot that's significantly closer in, then zooms, then cuts until we're right up on Christine's face as she tries to figure out where the strange sounds and mysterious wind are coming from. Windows blow open, gates creak, power goes out, all of it culminating in a shadowy goat-horned figure hitting her so hard across the face that she slams into a counter before falling to the floor. I do kind of wish they'd committed to showing her injuries as the film progressed instead of trying to keep her blonde and beautiful the whole time, because the whole point is that she is playing by society's rules and getting abused for it, and I feel like that would have been something you'd want to depict realistically, but that's a complaint you can level against just about any movie in Hollywood. When Clay returns, he talks over her attempts to explain what she experienced, and she overhears him and the doctor he calls, who's played by Ted Raimi, although he's mostly off-camera, discussing it in terms of PTSD and self-inflicted injuries. It's such an ugly piece of gaslighting and mansplaining disguised as tender loving care that it's really hard to like Clay at all after this, even though he does do the bare minimum to redeem himself later on. And I do mean the bare fucking minimum, but we'll get to that. That night in bed, a fly sneaks into the room through a window that opens itself, crawling first into one of Christine's nostrils and out the other before climbing into her mouth. This gives her horrifying dreams of Mrs. Ganush straddling her in bed and vomiting worms and bugs onto her, 
a stunt that Alison Lohman did herself because this is an actor who goes for it. I cannot stress enough how fearless her choices in this film were and how much she embraced Sam Raimi's torture-the-actor aesthetic. But she wakes up to a bright, sunshiny Thursday morning. This being capitalism, she's expected to come into work despite her traumatic experience, and unsurprisingly it doesn't go well. She hallucinates Mrs. Ganoush's gnarled fingers at the end of Stu's hand when he comes to her for training, and when Mr. Jax comes out to speak with her, she develops a projectile nosebleed that spews gore like a fountain all over her boss's face and chest. I feel like there's some very obvious symbolism here regarding the disgust guys usually show over menstruation, and the general belief many hold that women are just faking the severity of their symptoms to get out of working. In fact, the entire three days of torment thing feels like a menstruation analogy. Christine runs out, apologizing, and Stu takes the opportunity to steal the important file she's been working on. Having realized there's not much she can do other than find Mrs. Ganoush and grovel, Christine goes to her granddaughter's house to see if the younger woman knows where she is. Because again, she was evicted from her house with suspicious rapidity. It turns out that yes, she does know, and yes, she's right there in the house, where there's a loud, raucous wake going on with Sylvia Ganoush's body as the center of attention, which Christine manages to fall directly onto, causing it to topple over and douse her with embalming fluid because Christine's life is just like that now. And a few things. First, the granddaughter is played by Bojana Novakovic, who does a good job with a pretty thankless role. She's mainly just there to drag Christine. <laughs> See what I did there? For being the proximate cause of her grandma's death, which is a lot of moral burden to put on Christine, even though the whole point of the movie is that women get scapegoated for every damn thing in this world. And second, there's a lot of cameos in this scene. Emma Raimi, Sam's daughter, is present as a mourner, and her mother in the scene is played by Bonnie Ahrens of the Nun and Jacob's Wife fame. Also present is Scott Spiegel, who we all love from The Dead Next Door. It's a nice touch, even if the wake itself feels like another piece of awkward racism with plenty of Eastern European stereotypes on display and not even the most cursory research into Romani funerary practices. As near as I can tell, and again, I'm not an expert, there's no tradition of a wake at all among the Roma, and mourning is described as almost extravagantly solemn, with everyone dressed in black at all times and generally averse to even touching the body directly. This is basically Sam Raimi just making shit up, in other words, and I'm pretty glad this is where the Romani stuff more or less leaves the story, even though it's ultimately kind of inescapable given its foundational importance to the plot. Realizing that Mrs. Ganoush isn't going to be much help, Christine goes back to Ram Joss, who's a lot more chatty than the previous evening. He tells her that the button has been cursed, and that when it was handed to her, she acquired that curse. She's in for three days of torment, at the end of which the Lamia will personally drag her to hell. He suggests trying to appease it with an animal sacrifice, and when Christine says she's a vegetarian who works in an animal shelter, Ram Joss drops one of the best lines in the whole movie. You will be surprised what you're willing to do when the Lamia comes calling for you. He gives her a book on how to perform the sacrifice appropriately and sends her home. Well, not mentioning that she can pass the curse on by giving the button to someone else, because again, he's not willing to stick his neck out that far for a woman. Back at home, Christine gets another visit from the Lamia, this one ending with her getting thrown into a dresser hard enough to splinter the wood. I'm not really going into great detail on these because they're really just lots of creepy noises and spooky shadows and tense ominous music, but they are very effective at conveying the sense of torment that leads Christine ever deeper into desperation and terror. You can really believe she's up shit creek here, basically. And again, a lot of that is due to Alison Lohman's wonderful, wonderful performance in the role. Oh, and it does have one of the most inventive jump scares of the post-cellular era. As Christine tries to call Clay, she watches the battery drain to zero in real time before the screen shows a glimpse of an undead Mrs. Ganoush lunging at her. It's a hell of a creepy moment. After the assault ends, Christine sacrifices her kitten. I kind of feel like it wouldn't have been that hard to find a live chicken or a goat on short notice, but then again, I am not in her mental state and I will not judge her choices. She's in the shit, and the whole point is that everyone is judging her and no one is helping her, and I don't want to perpetuate that, even though she's a fictional character. Clay arrives just as she finishes burying their pet, hoping that she has resolved the curse once and for all, 
and the two of them go to dinner with his parents, who are, as you may have gathered from the phone call, incredibly rich and snobby. They have self-evidently prejudged Christine as not worthy of their son, I would bet good money that they also think he's wasting his time as a lowly college professor, and they're snotty and sneering about the cake Christine made. I will sum up this incredibly difficult-to-watch sequence of pure, awful social anxiety I literally could not look directly at the screen for much of this sequence, by saying that despite Christine's best efforts to win them over, which are heartbreakingly almost successful, the demon begins tormenting her with dreadful hallucinations while they're eating and she winds up running out of the room screaming. And of course, the parents treat it as a bullet dodged. Honestly, the only false note in this scene is that she almost wins them over. I don't believe this kind of rich, waspy type would ever warm up to someone lower class marrying into money no matter how amazing she was, and I think ready or not is a much more believable example of this kind of social interaction. But I digress. Christine goes back to Ramjas, telling him the animal sacrifice didn't work, and she's understandably pissed given that she just killed her pet on his advice, and he tells her there's a medium who might be able to help, but she charges 10,000 bucks a session. Christine first tries to get the money from her boss as a salary advance, but he tells her that the big loan she's been working on has just fallen through, almost as though it was sabotaged, and there's no way she's getting a big promotion or the salary increase she was hoping to draw from with it. Because your employer always wants to extract the maximum amount of value from you that they can before leaving you by the side of the road when things get rough. Christine decides to sell as many of her possessions as she can to a pawn shop in order to come up with the money, and she's attacked while gathering them up by an undead Mrs. Ganush in a scene that's maybe just a touch too campy for the subject matter. She sticks her arm down Christine's throat almost all the way to the elbow before Christine drops an inexplicably convenient anvil on her head, which causes a gush of cartoony CGI gore to splatter over Christine's face like it's a live-action cartoon. I don't know, maybe this works for some people, but it feels like a tone problem to me given how far we are into the shit-is-getting-real portion of the movie. Unfortunately, the pawnbroker will only give her $3,800, leaving her feeling bereft of hope and unaware of the existence of payday loans. Oh, sorry, was that my out loud voice? She consoles herself with ice cream, knowing that people with only one day to live don't have to worry about weight gain. But just as things are at their lowest, Clay shows up and tells her he's paid the medium's fee, which is presented as his big hero's moment, but let's face it, this is a guy whose life is so full of privilege that ten grand probably doesn't mean that much to him. It's still a nice gesture, especially as he's pretty straight about telling her that he accepts her belief in the Lamia as valid no matter what he might think about it, but still, it is the bare minimum. And so we're off to see the legendary medium. Sean Sandina. Bum, bum, bum. This time she's played by Adriana Barazza, and I feel like I'm missing some references here because she conspicuously mentions being the widow of another medium, Sandor, who built their house at the confluence of psychic forces that allow the dead to interact with the living, and that feels like a lot of random and unnecessary exposition if it's not referencing something else that Raimi loves. It does lead to a very cool seance scene, though, where a number of spirits show up, including one played by Sam Raimi himself, before the Lamia appears and possesses Sandina. But this was her plan all along. She has an assistant, Milos, played by Kevin Foster in an unfortunate bit of brownface, and a goat, whose presence at the seance table as if it's just another participant is never anything but hilarious. Once the Lamia possesses her, Christine has instructions to grab her hand and place it on the goat, which will draw the evil spirit into it, and then Milos has instructions to decapitate the goat, banishing the evil and ending the curse. And if you don't know that there's still about a half hour left in the movie, it might even feel like it's gonna work. But of course, there is, and it doesn't. Christine does her part, transmitting the spirit successfully, the goat bleeding angry insults at Christine is a real highlight of the film and one of the few places where I feel like the humor and horror blend successfully. But Milos misses with the machete and the goat bites his hand, transferring itself into him. He tells Christine to take her cat back, vomiting its corpse at her feet, and menaces the group while dancing in midair in a scene that feels just a tiny bit too much like rejected footage from what we do in the shadows to really work for me. It's not the fault of the effects, which are done by Howard Berger and Greg Nicotero and are up to their usual standards of brilliance, I think it's just that the staging of the scene is a little too over the top. 
Sandina manages to banish the spirit out of Milos's body, but the effort kills her, and as Ramjas explains, it hasn't done anything to help Christine's predicament. With no other options left, and on her last day, he tells her that she can pass the curse on by giving away the button, which he seals into an envelope for future dramatic irony. Christine now has until morning to give the button to someone, but as Ramjas explains, that person will be condemned to an eternity of torment. She has Clay take her home, momentarily losing and regaining the envelope in a moment of abrupt breaking in what I have to call Chekhov's kerfuffle. And honestly, if you want to understand the entire movie in microcosm, it's Clay almost running over a male pedestrian and him responding by telling Christine to go to hell. And then, sleepless and frantic, she goes to an all-night diner to find someone to give the button to. There is some of what I'd call the right kind of comedy here, genuinely based in the situation and not shtick. Christine looks around the room evaluating the suitability of various strangers for eternal torment and threatens the waitress with it for complaining about her low tip. But ultimately, as we knew she would, she calls Stu up and tells her to meet her at the diner if he doesn't want Mr. Jacks finding out that he scuttled the most important loan in the history of the man's career. Stu shows up, abjectly piteous and pathetic and begging Christine not to tell his dad. That is such a nice touch. It's the first time we've ever even heard the dad mentioned, and to see it deployed in this way is such a nice little piece of gross and squirmy loserdom that I can't help loving it. But Christine decides she can't give him the button, because once again her fatal flaw is in thinking that she should play by rules that will always, always be stacked against her, and she instead calls Ram Jass and asks if the recipient of the button has to be someone living. And when he says no, she goes and digs up the body of Sylvia Ganush. And to me this is such an interesting choice, because it is a very morally conflicted option. On the one hand, it's hard to argue that Mrs. Ganush doesn't deserve it. It's literally the same fate she wanted to inflict on Christine, poetic justice in its purest form, and very reminiscent of the Night of the Demon slash Curse of the Demon plot that Raimi is liberally borrowing from. On the other hand, it is the point in the film where Christine chooses, of her own free will, to make Sylvia suffer the way she spent the entire movie insisting she never did. She's been saying this whole time it was the bank's fault and her boss's fault and everyone's fault but hers, and that's more true than I think it's given credit for by the text. But she is condemning Sylvia to hell and there's no equivocating it this time. I like that there are no easy answers, and I like that the scene where she does it is grimy and awful and hard because it shouldn't be easy to do something like this. Although, one, is it really this easy to get into a cemetery late at night and dig up a grave? Not saying that it isn't, because I've never actually tried, but if it is, maybe it shouldn't be. And two, when the metal cross falls into the flooded grave and hits Christine right on the head with a loud clang, I'm sorry, but she should just be dead. That fucking sounded fatal. And while normally I'd say that's good sound design, I really can't, because it's not actually supposed to be. And third... Oh my god, Alison Lohman is a trooper in this. They couldn't use any kind of fake mud because it all made her break out in hives, so she is really crawling around in actual dirt and mud and stage-produced rain, going through the worst experience anyone could go through in their life for Sam Raimi, and she does it magnificently. I didn't ask myself how they did this scene because I just really believed, yeah, she's down there in a grave. She's fighting with an old woman's corpse. It's all really happening. It's not hard to figure out. Wonderful, wonderful job. But in the end, Christine gives away the button and crawls out of the grave, literally and metaphorically, and showers off the grime before she goes to join Clay at the train station for a well-deserved vacation. Along the way, she finds out that Stu attempted to frame her for the theft of the file and was caught by Mr. Jacks, leading to his termination. Again, this hits differently when Stu is himself a person of color and it's still a white man left on top. The scapegoat has still been found, but this time it's a Filipino man instead of a white woman. The promotion is hers and everything is fine. But, let's face it, this film isn't called Drag Someone Else to Hell and misogyny does not come with a get-out-of-jail-free card. And sure enough, when Christine meets up with Clay, she admits that she too was playing a part in the whole interlocking system of patriarchy and power that crushes women who try to play by the rules. 
she could have held true to her beliefs and sacrificed the promotion that was probably never going to happen for her in order to make another woman's life a little better. But she didn't. Because that's the thing about systemic oppression. We're all kind of a little bit responsible for it, even if some of us are a lot more responsible than others. And Christine is a good enough person to feel guilty, which is what makes what happens next that much more tragic. Because, as you've probably already guessed if you're paying even a tiny bit of attention, the envelope containing her button got mixed up with the one containing Clay's rare coin. He found it, and even though it's in his possession right now, even the laws of the goddamn universe are on the side of men here, and her fate is inescapable. Christine backs frantically away, she falls onto the train tracks, and right before Clay's very eyes, she is dragged into hell to suffer for all eternity. And that's it. That's the end. There's no coda, nothing to help the audience absorb the awful shock of what they've just witnessed. Christine's dead, she's burning forever, now get the fuck out of the theater. I think it's no surprise under the circumstances that this got something of a mixed response from critics and fans, although it was a modest success. It's an uncompromising movie, brutal in its bright spotlight on misogyny, and it's so bleak in its final outlook that it's honestly a little hard to take. Try as hard as you want, strive to be twice as good as every man around you, and in the end it's no use because the deck is stacked against women in ways large and small, and patriarchy will just steamroll right over you if you play by its rules. That's rough. I think there are other reasons the film didn't do better. Let's face it, by this point in his career, Sam Raimi was expected to hit nothing but home runs, and the minor tone issues in this movie do make it a bit of a mixed bag, even though that should be exactly what you'd expect from someone as quirky and cult as Raimi. Like John Carpenter, Toby Hooper, and George Romero, he's one of those guys who makes movies designed to be reappraised ten years later. Or, in my case, fourteen. But will I hang on to this movie after all that? I gotta admit, I'm really torn. On the one hand, I think it's a brilliant movie, one that practically everyone needs to see because it's really saying something important about systemic oppression and the dilemmas it creates for women who are just trying to muddle their way through a complicated and impossible world. But on the other hand, boy is this a tough watch. I cannot think of a circumstance under which I'd put this on for fun or pleasure, and that's usually why I rewatch movies. Plus, you know racist as fuck. For now, I think I'll hang on to it out of respect for the work it's putting in, and acknowledge that I'll probably never see it again. And if you want to talk about misogyny, racist Romani caricatures, or about any of the other fun topics that came up on this podcast, you can find me on Twitter as at HalfHorror, and on Tumblr and Letterboxd as HalfPriceHorror. My watch list on Letterboxd contains everything I plan to tackle in future episodes. If there's something you'd like to hear about, let me know. You can also support the show at patreon.com slash halfpricehorror and hear episodes a week early, and you can rate and review me on Apple Podcasts and anywhere this podcast is found. And next time on Half Price Horror, look, we've watched 103 movies for this podcast now, and that's, you know, that's a lot. Maybe we can take a little break and see what's on television? Oh hey, it's the first five episodes of Ash vs. Evil Dead! Just the right amount to binge, recap, and discuss. See you then.